Roseanne Rowlett is one of birding's pioneering leaders. Her instinct has always been to gather others together to observe nature and especially birds. This instinct began when she was just in the second grade in Austin, Texas, where she and her older brother John set a high bar to join their neighborhood bird club, memorizing all the birds listed in the junior encyclopedia under birds and a nickel fee. She continued to organize and start birding and nature groups at almost every age and place in her life. Teaching and sharing her love of our planet turned eventually into a long career as one of the first and foremost tour guides in America, beginning in 1974. Roseanne has led well over 300 tours worldwide, and after eight years as a principal with Victor Emanuel Nature Tours, co-founded Field Guides in 1985, where she worked for more than 30 years until her retirement in 2016. Roseanne, who now lives in Portal, Arizona, near her beloved Chiricahua Mountains, has spent much of her life in Texas, but also has had years of exposure to both coasts, having lived in both California and Vermont. She has also been a part of and influencing the shape of our birding community in all of those places, even gaining mythical status with the impossibly elusive species known as Rowlett's Allet. Her graduate school studies in botany and ornithology only begin to tell the story of what Roseanne still finds fascinating. It is a distinct pleasure and honor to welcome Roseanne Rowlett to the Voices of Birding History. I was born in Austin, Texas, and my brother and I together were kind of interested in outdoors and played outdoors a lot, but it wasn't until my second grade school teacher, Miss Meek, had a unit on nature where she assigned tasks, and my task was to identify these little birds that she had plastered around the edges of a big poster board for the hall, and she gave me a, an Eastern Poe Guide, uh, Audubon Bird Guide, to use. Sure. It had these wonderful echoberry plates in it, and I got to use that bird guide to label these bird pictures that were, they were little cards from Arm and Hammond baking soda that she'd collected. They're beautiful and they were easily identifiable. And so she ended up, well, I ended up with that book and I, I can't remember now whether she gave it to me or whether my parents bought one for me, but I do remember strongly when my brother and I were walking home from school in Cassis in Austin, and saw this wonderful orange and black bird right outside our school. And we had seen it in that book, but we didn't know what it was. Sure. And we ran all the way home, several miles, a couple of miles anyway, to get to the book to identify it was a Baltimore Oriole. And it made such an impression on both of us that it sort of, together, all those things caused us to start looking carefully all the time for birds more specifying on birds instead of everything natural. And so that's sort of how, that's one of the main memories of how I got started. And, and it was probably with my brother, you know, that we were able to keep it up. We had each other. Yeah. <laughs> it was still kind of a freaky time to be a bird watcher, you know, it was early Different. days. It's a very common theme that I have uh, heard from birders that the ability to have somebody else in your life to spur you on and to compare notes and to do it together is a really important component to kind of how, how the engine gets started. I think it is. I mean, I think uh, sharing that kind of stuff, having somebody else to share it with is real important. And John, your, your brother was older, correct? 
He was, yeah, one year ahead of me in school, two years older, but, but just ahead of me in school. So we spent a lot of time, mostly in our neighborhood, in a bicycle distance from our house for years, just right. birding on our own. And my parents gave us a little pair of binoculars. Initially, we couldn't get along with their opera glasses, and so they ended up buying <laughs> us each a pair of cheap binoculars. Sure. And we could ride around the neighborhood, and, and it was a wooded section of Austin in west, kind of West Austin on Bonnie Road area, Bridal Path, Bonnie Road. So we had beautiful trees and great place for migration through Central Texas, right there in our yard and neighborhood. So we saw a lot of things on our own before we knew that there were other bird watchers. Well, how did you find out about other bird watchers? Oh, we had a neighbor down the street who read a, a little piece in the Austin American Statesman about a Travis Audubon Society holding a field trip on a weekend, upcoming weekend, and it changed our lives. We talked my father into taking us. And <laughs> it was only about eight miles from our house, but it was down to the Colorado River, which runs through Austin mm. and is now dammed up. But at the time, it was still running below Lake Austin. And we saw all kinds of lifers on that trip. And we, Fred Webster, right. the field trip leader, taught us how to make a screech owl call. And that could bring in birds. You know, we were so astounded. We practiced at it until we got pretty good at it. <laughs> and then we kept yeah. birding. And, and, that, and those people in the Travis Audubon Society were fabulous to us. They started taking us out. So you got all of these people then that became sort of instant mentors to some Yeah, because my parents weren't really interested uh, my father was very tolerant and, and took us on a couple of field trips. But when these people kind of saw our interest, they started inviting us to go with them. And Fred and Marie Webster took us out for years. And on all these Travis Audubon Society field trips, we met other people, including Edgar Kincaid, who changed our lives, you know, had a, was a major influence on us for the rest of our lives. He, Talk about him. Well, he was kind of our mentor. He was an authority on the birds of Texas, and he was a habitat birder, and he influenced all of us. He started taking us to Mexico early on, and that was a major influence on us. It broadened our world, you know. I can't imagine what was going through your parents' mind to let you go to Mexico. I know. <laughs> on the first trip, you know, you couldn't cross the border in those days without a parent or a guardian. So he talked to a couple of other women in the Travis Audubon Society into going along to be my guardian so that I could go too. <laughs> Poncho Frank Oatman, whom we'd met through the Travis Audubon Society trips, had become a, a fast friend, and the three of us were birding together. He was four years older, and he had a driver's license, and so we were able to bird with him a good bit around Austin. And he and John, my brother, and I were together called the Eager Beavers <laughs> by local people. Eager Beavers. And Edgar stood taking us to Mexico at Christmas with my parent permission because he was such a fine, he was a great man. Now, you also had mentioned this neighborhood bird club, which I think is somewhat unique. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, when we were kids, we were collecting butterflies and stuff, too. And so we started a rather exclusive 
bird club where kids had to pay a nickel apiece to join and they had to be able to identify <laughs> any bird that appeared in the under bird in the encyclopedia but they were were from all over the world so kids had to study them you know Exotic, and <laughs> yeah. memorize their names <laughs> before they could get in our club but but we got you know we got about i don't know 6 8 members <laughs> and we birded together around the neighborhood wow. That's, a, that's kind of a high bar. It was. I mean, it was funny. I don't know why we picked that. But, you know, we had read the encyclopedia about birds from the time we first got an encyclopedia. And so we'd learned so much. It was, it was a way of stimulating other kids to learn more about birds. One neighbor, David Northington, ended up becoming a botanist and ended up becoming head of the Lyndon Bird Johnson Wildflower Institute outside of Austin. <laughs> you are in this Audubon Society doing these field trips. You're being exposed to different parts of the world already at a very young age. You obviously would have been meeting other birders. Even in the late 50s and all, we were, in fact, the Texas Ornithological Society had two meetings a year in those days, and there was one in April of 1958 that was at Rockport, where Connie Hager had become known as a keen birder, and she and her husband ran some cottages there, and we talked my father to take John and Poncho and me down, and Edgar was going to be there too, and it was a three-day weekend kind of trip, and that was where we got to meet a whole bunch of people. There were people from, I think, eight or ten states that came to that Texas Ornithological Society meeting, mainly because Connie Hager had become known as a person who birded twice a day and saw lots of neat birds at Rockport. And Roger Troy Peterson came to that one, and sure enough, on one of our hmm. field trips, John and Poncho and I were out together and encountered a buff-rested sandpiper with a broken wing and um, my brother caught it and we took it back and we were showing it to Roger Troy Peterson and he thanked us immensely because he had never been able to illustrate the underwing of the buff-breasted sandpiper. You know, it's pale and, <laughs> and all the <laughs> specimens are so tight you can't, you can't pull the wing open, you know, to get it <laughs> good illustration. So he took lots of pictures of it. <laughs> yeah, he was going to illustrate it for his upcoming bird life, a, a guide to birds of Texas. But that there were people from all over the state that were involved in that, and and then through Edgar, um, started doing pelagic trips off the Texas coast. And uh, I was too young for a while for my parents to let me go with my brother and Poncho on overnight trips alone. But by 1959, we did a trip to the Rio Grande Valley together, and it was the first time that they'd let me go on an unaccompanied trip <laughs> with my brother and Frank. And I just turned 14, and we saw all kinds of lifers in the lower Rio Grande Valley. And then we started, Edgar did Christmas count in Falcon Dam and Brownsville. We started meeting other people who would come to do these Christmas counts eventually. And I guess through Audubon people, we would plan these Mexico trips at Christmas with people that we met through birding in Texas. And then we started birding with them and we met Victor Emanuel. And I remember 
we got to see the Eskimo curlew. <laughs> the, uh, we were there for the last wow. the last documented photographed one on Galveston Island in 1962. It was in March of 1962. It's one that it, I think had been seen for four years in a row on Galveston Island, but this was the one that was photographed by Don Bites and the Stricklings, Jerry and Nancy Strickling found it. And in those days, it was sort of a phone, a phone bank. I mean, it was phone communication between birders. Right. And that was the only way you found out about things. And so the connections really did matter. You know, because there's been such an explosion of interest in birding since that time, I think people might be interested in hearing a little bit about what was the birding community like? Well, the early days in Austin, early birding in the in the late fifties and early sixties, you know, we were the kids, and all the other birders were adults, and so there were some. Initially, there were like if when we would find rare birds, it would be initially uh, received with some skepticism, and so like on one time we found an amazing bird at the sewage ponds in Austin, which just happened to be discovered by Frank Oatman, the ponds themselves, because he went to a Thanksgiving party with some distant relatives and turned out their property had been leased for these Travis County Austin sewage ponds. And there were some big ponds. And he went out there taking a break from the the Thanksgiving party and saw all these birds that were like a golden eye and some buffle heads. And he came back and he told John and me, and we went out there the next day. We got Edgar Kincaid and Fred Webster to go with us. And sure enough, you know, we saw Bonaparte skull, we saw golden eyes and, and buffle heads and things that were rare inland anywhere in Texas and unknown from Austin. And on one occasion, we continued to bird the sewage ponds. John and Puncher and I spent a lot of time birding the sewage ponds. And on one occasion, <laughs> we found a red fowler up there, and that was the first inland record for Texas. And we knew that, you know, it would be met with skepticism. And we talked to my brother into... Uh, remember, we're young. <laughs> we talked my brother into swimming out and then diving underwater <laughs> and coming up under the red fowler up and catching it by its legs. And we took it back and showed it to Edgar and Fred <laughs> and photographed it and then put it in a little cage and took it back out to the sewage ponds and let it go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Wow. And we had to, like, after that, and we, we couldn't tell our parents that we'd done that. So we had to go sneak over, get him to change underwear because his, his underwear came out stained green. <laughs> we were kind of instrumental by happenstance in getting people to recognize the incredible resource for birding that were provided by sewage ponds. And actually, the Austin, the Hornsby Ponds, are still one of the big attractions in Texas now for more than birders. It's for natural history people in general. But in fact, they had their 50th anniversary a few years back and they invited us to come to it, even though we were scattered around the the states. But we weren't able to do it. But it was a sweet gesture. It was in recognition of the fact that we kind of established that. And it spread across the country slowly that sewage ponds were worth birding. I think Frank found them on Thanksgiving of 1959. I was 14 then. 
How aware were you of all of the changes and advances that were going on in the birding community? Well, you know, slowly we became more and more aware. We would go to the library. We relied on the auk and the condor for information about birds for a while and then realized that we weren't learning about stuff going on in Texas, especially. But we tried, like we were going to try and publish a little article in 1961. Hurricane Carla was a big hurricane. It hit the coast, the central coast of Texas, and it moved inland. The eye of the hurricane broke up somewhere between Bastrop and Austin, and it was carrying all these birds in the eye of the hurricane. And they, as the winds died down, they were deposited, and it was right around the sewage pond. <laughs> and so we birded a couple days after, a few days after that, we started seeing unbelievable stuff at the sewage ponds, you know, all these ibis and terns that or coastal terns, even frigate birds were, were turning up there. And so we communicated to everybody in Texas that we knew <laughs> to come to the sewage ponds. And people started watching all of Austin, and there were reports of frigate birds going down the Colorado River for the next two weeks. It was all phone bank at the time. Other keen birders in Texas, Victor Emanuel, David Wolf. Dean Fisher, people that we birded, we would meet to bird with around the state and pretty much built up a communication with them by phone. And Jim Tucker, Silla Mm -hmm. Ely, his partner, lived with Suzanne and me for a long time. All this is compressed. I mean, I ended up going to California, I think it was March of 1969, and that was about the same time that Jim Tucker, I think that was about the same time that Jim started the ABA. Well, that was when I got to know, you know, I looked up American birds, used to be called Auburn Field Notes, and Ted Chandick was the editor for Northern California. And so I didn't know anybody when I went to California to speak of. And so I looked up Ted Chandick in Palo Alto and he said, oh, well, I'm having a party to look at some slides with a bunch of birders here tomorrow night. You want to come? And I did. And I met Rich Stockup and Dave Sandy and John and Suzanne Luther and started getting to know and started birding with all of those people. So there were, again, it was word of mouth. It was telephone communication between people and party communication. Talk a little bit about your education background. I had a high school counselor who counseled me not to go into ornithology because that was my passion. It was very Victorian advice. You couldn't mix your passion with your job, that that would ruin your passion. So I kind of believed her and I went into botany instead. So I did a, a degree at University of Texas at Austin in botany and then went, got an MDEA to go to graduate school in Seattle at University of Washington in botany and started working there. But after a year, moved back to Texas. And then when that didn't work out, I went to California because it was a time when San Francisco was very attractive and Berkeley area. And I hadn't birded California. I had a lot of lifers to see. So I just chose California. As it turned out, it was wonderful. You know, I got to know all these people. 
people there, I kind of spread the bird name phenomenon to California, what had started in Texas and expanded around Texas so that most of the main Texas birders had bird names. And that's when I got to know Suzanne and John, and we spent a lot of time birding together. And also there was that Texas connection, you know, all these California birders started birding in Texas. I would introduce them to other Texas birders, and there was quite a good bit. I ended up doing a master's degree with Howard Consul, an ornithology professor at Cal State Hayward. And it sort of evolved out of that first party that Ted Chandick had invited me to. Dave DeSanti told me that I was looking for a job, and Dave DeSanti said, I know somebody who's looking for somebody who can identify gulls from the air. He flies his little plane around. He has an uh, NIH grant to study gulls in relationship to garbage dumps <laughs> and air, airports because they were flying across runways. And, and the, the question was, why? Mm-hmm. And so I said, that sounds like something I love. <laughs> And so I went over and interviewed and got that job and started flying around with Howard Consul and some with him. And he taught me into going to graduate school there. And I worked on birds. I worked on, did a ornithology project on plain tit mice and chestnut chickadees in the Bay Area. Uh, the chickadees sure. had recently invaded the East Bay, mainly through plantings in the Santa Clara Valley, you know, San Jose area that all these plantings had given them habitat enough that they got across the valley and started getting to good trees in the East Bay. And so they had invaded the area where the oak titmice had lived for for many generations, of course. And so the question was, well, I read a paper by a professor from Berkeley who had studied them a little bit and claimed that they were interspecifically territorial against each other. And that's really rare in nature. And so I like that, what? <laughs> and I started trying to map their territories. I ended up mapping their territories at Garen Woods and they turned out to be completely overlapping territories. So there was not competition between the species except occasionally for nest site. They're both hole nesters and there was a bit of a shortage of holes in the woods where I was studying them because Nettles Woodpecker was essentially the only woodpecker there making holes and apparently not enough for all the, the titmice and chickadees and ash throat flycatchers, everything that used them. So there was a little competition for nest holes, but not for territories. By then, the the Jim Lane guides were out and the California birders had a pretty good network of people all over the state and we became more connected with Texas birders and then after sort of completing the research and writing my thesis I got a call from my brother who was back in Austin and getting ready to go to graduate school at UVA and he had been helping edit the Bird Life of Texas which is the Oberholzer manuscript that Edgar Kincaid was the chief editor of and he had been working on it. I'd worked on it for years myself but mostly by gathering data for it for the range maps. So I sort of worked on the Bird Life of Texas with Edgar through high school college days but John was working on editing it. This was a three million word manuscript 
that Edgar was charged with reducing to one million words and updating from Oberholzer's last input in 1945, and it took 30 years. <laughs> so we had both worked on it, birding what Edgar called underbirded counties for years. <laughs> it came out in 1974, and I think it was about 72. They were trying to finish it up, and that sometime about then it's when my brother was going to leave and had to quit it. And they asked me if I would come back and finish editing it. And so I did. I came back to Austin to work on the Bird Life of Texas. Suzanne Winkler was the other co-editor of the Bird Life of Texas. And she and I ended up becoming best friends, and we still are. <laughs> and we mm. lived together and worked on the Bird Life of Texas together until it was finished. And Suzanne had come into the project as an editor, not a birder, and she got into it. It was, would be hard not to with the cassowary. Edgar Kincaid's bird name was the cassowary because he was so aware of the impact mankind was having on the environment throughout the world. And that he also instilled both concern about the environment plus a kind of desire to see as much of it as we could <laughs> as soon as possible. So while we were working on the bird life of Texas, Suzanne and I did birding. And, and also Frank, one of the early beavers, he helped with the editing of some of it too. And I ended up falling in love and marrying Alan Griffith at the time. We ended up, let's see, I worked at the general land office as a biologist for, I don't know, a couple of years and was still working on the bird life bibliography or something at that point. And he helped with some of that too. And then we ended up moving to Vermont where Frank Oatman and John Woods, our Austin buddies, had bought a house in northern Vermont. And Alan was a carpenter type, and we had been talking about buying an old house in Austin and fixing it up. Well, John and, and Frank Poncho were doing that in Vermont. So we went to Vermont and bought a house together, the four of us. <laughs> and that was when we started birding the Northeast, and I was getting all kinds of lifers in Vermont. And there was a whole network of people growing in Vermont. Too. The ADA would have been started because Scylla lived with Suzanne and me in Austin for a while while we were trying to get, get that started. But I left shortly after it started, but I collected all those birding inserts. That was the big value of it to me, <laughs> was making bird finding inserts that you could collect and share. And I got into hawk watching. I'd started the Central Coast Hawk Watch in Texas between Corpus and Three Rivers, where we would get people to come on a weekend and spread out every few miles across a transect from Corpus Christi inland to the west toward Three Waters and count all raptors heading south in September. That's when the huge hawk migration moves of broadwings moves through Texas, but there are also large numbers, you know, moving down the coast of, other, of falcons and things too. But I started that and I was in the hawk watching when I moved to Vermont. And so we started doing a lot of hawk watching in Vermont, trying to develop places on mountaintops 
that connected us to a lot of birders in Vermont that were interested in that sort of thing, the Hawk Migration Association of, of North America. And I would say it was still mostly kind of word of mouth. I mean, it wasn't well until we were guiding tours. We'd been guiding tours for a long time before there were computer services, you know. Mm-hmm. Frank Oatman was the one who started guiding tours. He he worked for Questers Tours and Travel for a while and eventually had his own private company. But he got me interested. He told the folks at Questers, he recommended me, and they hired me to start guiding tours while I was living in Vermont. So that was like the fall of 1972. And I started guiding tours to Guatemala and Belize and Mexico, Yucatan, and places that we had birded. And those were more general natural history tours. And it wasn't until John and Victor called up and said that they were going to start Victor Emanuel Nature Tours, and they wanted me to join them, that I realized it'd be more fun to do primarily birding tours, because I'd realized that birders on, on these Questers tours, there were mixed mixed group of people that came on them. There would be botany types and people interested in the ruins, like when we would do Yucatan, we would go to all the ruins, and they were good areas for birding. And what we would do is start early with the bird people who would go out early, but the other people didn't really want to go that early to the ruins. So we'd come back and have breakfast and then go to the ruins and that kind of thing. And then there would be botanists along, you know. I realized early on that the birders were interested in everything, (laughs) whereas some of these other people were not interested in birds. And so I ended up going with Victor Emanuel Nature Tours instead of Questers and started doing full-time tours and ended up moving back to Texas. Lived in Rockport. Hmm. Alan and I did the Rockport tours for a couple of years where we drove a, a bus. It was a Mercedes-Benz bus. that <laughs> We did it every morning for whooping cranes, and then we'd take people to see greater prairie chickens booming and do a loop and then shorebirds along the coast. So we did those for, I don't know, a year and a half or two years, maybe in the winters, winter springs. And then I started guiding trips to the tropics. And then how did field guides come about? Well, after several years of debate amongst the principals at VENT, you know, as to the kind of structure that worked best for our kind of business, it became clear to me that we'd reached an impasse, like mm. sort of a, a divorce, basically. Mm. Um, several of the guides came with me to form a company based on a different model, one that was more guide-based and, and one that we felt was more likely to perpetuate the company. And after... 33 years now, I'm still really proud to be associated with Field Guides. And before I forget, how did you get the nickname Western Grebe, and how did all of that start? The bird name thing developed on that very first trip with Edgar to Mexico. We were sitting around in the vehicle on the way down talking about people we knew back in Austin in the Travis Ottoman Society and saying, you know, this lady, gosh, she's like a mockingbird. She repeats everything you say. (laughs) She repeats everything. (laughs) Marianne McClendon was always eating bananas. 
So she was like a tenanter, and we just were joking around with it. When Edgar, he came up with Western Grebe for me because it used to be the number one bird on the AOU checklist. I think it was the 1953 edition of American Ornithologist Union checklist. It was the first bird listed, and he said, you're AOU number one. <laughs> it was very sweet. What a compliment. And, but also, I had a long neck, and I was a swimmer in those days. I was sort of a competitive swimmer. Right. And John, my brother, was the pepper shrike because he had a very bouncy song, like a Rufus Brown pepper shrike. And Frank was originally a, a hylophilus, but that didn't suit him too well. And it, he eventually got changed to a hoopoe. He was sort of crazy and excitable, you know, how hoopoes do their flips in the air and stuff. They do this incredible <laughs> kind of courtship display. Mm. Victor was the hooded warbler. He wasn't on that trip, but eventually Edgar started giving bird names to everybody in the Texas bird luck community. We all used our bird names when we were around the cassowary, and the cassowary donned everybody at the University of Texas press a bird name. The Frank Wardlaw, the head of the press, was the emperor penguin, and Joe Alice Downs, the designer of the bird life of Texas was the hermit thrush and Suzanne Winkler was the brown pelican because she was a rare and endangered species <laughs> and our theory was that he kind of saw this as a way of elevating the status of people he cared about above human being you know you mm. don him a bird name and it makes him noble somehow whereas people were, were the mm. source of a lot of destruction of the earth I think there's probably a number of people that have read Ken Kaufman's book, Kingbird Highway, and people may remember Rowlett's Allet from that book. Can you talk a little bit about that? It was June 1972 when I met Ken. It was on that trip out to Fort Jefferson. Right. He and Joel Greenberg had come, and, and the Brown Pelican and I and another friend, Ruth Black, we're doing a Florida trip and included that. And at that point, our friends Ted and Zoe Chandick from California had come, driven from California and stayed with us in Austin and drove all the way do that trip too. So we had a, a lot of good people on that boat trip. We had a lot of fun talking about birds <laughs> and meeting, you know, other people. And when Ken came back through Austin, he stayed with Pelly and me and, you you know, we went birding together and we'd gotten to know him and I loved him. I mean, he was wonderful fun. And he came on that Freeport Christmas count where <laughs> we had loaned him Edgar's scope and he, <laughs> he lost it on the end of the jetty when mm -hmm. he got washed off. It was a great, fun time of just meeting people and getting to know each other, birding together. And, and the Rowlett Owlet thing has come back to me a lot over the years because I've been guiding tours for so long. Sure. And invariably, people have read that book and make some comment about Rowlett's Owlet. <laughs> Ted Parker and I used to do number. Uh, we did Peru tours together, and he would he would occasionally bring up the Rowlett's Owlet when we were in pursuit of some bird that you know was really hard to find. Roseanne, you met so many significant people in the birding community. You mentioned Ted Parker, and obviously Edgar Kincaid had a huge impact on your life. But there are probably others that some people might not know about. There's so many. 
and in different ways. I mean, I remember Ted Chanda. He was an incredible teacher, and he was a naturalist in Palo Alto at the Baylands Nature Center or something for years. And he must have introduced more new people to birds than any person I've ever met. I mean... (laughs) You know, because there were all these Bay Area people that just wandered into the Natural Science Center there and would go out on the boardwalk on a a field trip with him. And he was enthusiastic and he would just turn them on to birds. And then he started doing his flight by Mm -hmm. dawn. He would do little field trips for anybody who wanted to come every weekend. And so, I mean, there are people Mm -hmm. like that who had enormous influence on broadening the awareness Mm. and leading up to Earth Day Mm. and environmental awareness that so increased. Mm. And then Ken Kaufman, I mean, he he did a lot in terms of getting all over the country and meeting everybody and, (laughs) and, you know, then communicating with them later and all. What I find intriguing is the botany uh, component, because even though you didn't pursue it academically, I have no doubt that it has been a part of who you are. Oh, absolutely, you know. And it's the kind of thing where, and I've got, I mean, I have had these urges. Yeah, I've gotten into grasshoppers. We had a big grasshopper year here in Arizona. Uh, about, I don't know, it may have been eight or ten years ago now, but where for some reason all the ecological factors came together, that there was an incredible diversity of grasshoppers, and I ended up <laughs> getting into identifying them and and identifying 30 species right in the portal area. And grasshoppers and plants and, you know, wildflowers and shrubs and trees and dragonflies, dragonflies and everything. And, sure. and, and yeah. I, I regret that I don't have, I, I won't have a long enough life to learn all the stuff. <laughs> There's so much out there to learn. 